This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Now, this episode is long overdue. I've been following the work of Asif Surya for over a decade now, and it's proven to be one of the best sources of investment ideas I've come across. Asif tracks and writes about everything from predictive insider trading patterns to uber cannibals, or companies that consistently use excess-free cash flow to buy back significant amounts of stock over long periods of time. Profit opportunities created by corporate actions, such as risk arbitrage and spinoffs, are also featured prominently in his work. Essentially, Asif is a classic value investor in search of a catalyst, and as he consistently demonstrates at his website, InsideArbitrage.com, event-driven catalysts can be some of the most effective means to realizing hidden value in the stock market. So it's my true pleasure to finally introduce you to my friend, Asif Surya. Hey, I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. Sheep get slaughtered. Asif, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jesse. We're really glad to be on. You know, this this one is, I, you know, we were talking before we started recording. I've been doing this podcast for six years now, and I've had your name on the list from day one to do this. So we finally have gotten together here to get this going. It's been long overdue, but I'm really excited to do this because uh, your framework for looking at uh, kind of event-driven investing, I think is so valuable. Um, and and so I guess let's just dive right into it. You've been writing Insider Weekends for 12 years now. It's hard to believe that it's been that long. I feel like I've been reading from the very beginning. Um, but uh, is that kind of where this all began was with the Insider Weekends um, product? For the insider transactions part of it, yes, it did. Uh, in 2010, I started writing insider weekends as a way to kind of aggregate what was happening in, um, you know, with insider transactions. Cause you get hundreds, hundreds of these transactions each month and, um, actually each week. So what I do every week is try to figure out what were the top five transactions on the buy side and what were the top five on the sell side. And then over time, I started doing a little bit more deeper work on them to try to understand what was driving these insiders to buy these stocks. So I had a website that was focused on just insider transactions. And I had a different website that was tracking merger arbitrage situations. And then in 2015, I figured it didn't make sense to have two different websites (laughs) tracking two different strategies. So I combined them uh, to form Inside Arbitrage in 2015 with two strategies. And then uh, over time, we ended up expanding to six or seven different strategies. Right. And, and I, you know, I, the reason I started reading uh, Insider Weekends is because you're absolutely right. There's so many transactions that come through. I, I try and look at all of them, but it's so helpful to have them distilled into kind of the highest signal transactions. But let, let's back up. How did you first get uh, interested in investing? Uh, you know, where, where did you get your start? What, what gave you the bug, I guess? So my dad was an investor for all his life. He, he worked in banking in India. Um, you know, the my earliest memories of him are pouring over annual reports. Uh, I would see him mm-hmm. do that more than I would see him do anything else. Uh, strangely enough, it didn't attract me because I, I didn't see the market as something that was rational. I figured it was, you know, a gambler's den, if you will. Right. So for a few years, I kept away. And then the bug got me in about 2001 in the middle of the dot-com bear market. Right. I really got into it, started looking into companies like Priceline. Um, 
and uh, we went from there. I started as a out as a value investor, reading you know Benjamin Graham, Phil Fisher, so on and so forth. And then over time, after the 2008-2009 uh, financial crisis, I figured there was probably a different way to think about this than just buying cheap stocks uh, and ending up in a bunch of value traps. So I pivoted to uh, event-driven uh, investing after reading Greenblatt's book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. Well, I just, you know, that was another book, one of my favorites. I think that was, uh, I think... Everybody goes through this process. If you start out as a value investor looking for a margin of safety and you do get sucked into, you know, value traps inevitably, you start looking for ways to avoid those things and for, for ways to kind of improve your batting average. And so, you know, I, I just finished reading your book, which is fantastic. I, it comes out in a, in a few months. Almost a year later, in May 2024. Oh, okay. Well, that's a shame because it, you know it, it's it's just it's such a wonderful um, resource, I think. But reading through your book, I I, I thought of a, one of my favorite quotes from Warren Buffett. Um, I think he wrote this in the 19 almost well 30 years ago, 40 years ago, um, the 1985 Berkshire Hathaway letter to shareholders. He wrote, what could be more advantageous in an intellectual contest, whether it be bridge, chess, or stock selection, than to have opponents who have been taught that thinking is a waste of energy? And essentially, he was referring to passive investing, how in so many investors have kind of given up on the, on the idea of looking for uh, opportunities in the markets and just kind of, you know, I'm going to buy the market. Um, your book is such a great resource for different ways of looking for opportunities within the market. And I think that from, from my standpoint, it seems like with so many investors giving up on that process that the, there's, ter- I mean, even, I mean, way more to than 1985 when, when, when Warren first wrote this. Uh, there's so much money in passive that it creates such tremendous opportunity to look for these kind of areas, whether it's insider buying or whatnot. These things that we'll we'll get to. Um, so let, let let's let's look at what is uh, for you. What is event driven investing? What is it? What does that mean? Yeah. So for me, event driven investing is uh, different strategies where there is a specific event that happens. Um, it could be a management change. Uh, the company could bring in a new CEO and his team of uh, ex executives that he brings along from his prior uh, company. It could be a spin off, uh, as we're seeing with GE. Uh, you have a new CEO, Larry Kulp, uh, not exactly new. He's been there for almost four years at this point. Um, but he's been trying to turn the company around and he's using spin-offs as a strategy to do that. So a spin-off would be an event-driven uh, strategy I would follow. Um, I put insider transactions in that category as well, uh, even though it's not traditionally conser- considered an event-driven strategy because it is an event where a company insider is putting their own money to buy the stock on the open market. Um, other strategies include uh, merger arbitrage, where um, one company is acquiring a different one. For example, Microsoft acquiring Activision Blizzard, and the stock isn't quite trading at the acquisition price for various reasons, including regulatory risks. And you get an opportunity if you think that the deal is going to close, you buy it at uh, well below the acquisition price, and you wait for the deal to close and pick up that spread, if you will. So that's one of the more popular event-driven strategies that are out there. So essentially, with event-driven investing, it, it seems to answer the question that is kind of on the minds of every investor in any situation, which is, what is the catalyst? Right? What, what is the catalyst for this working out? 
Yeah, so, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Yeah, so event-driven investing is uh, driven by catalysts in some sense. Uh, going back to what we were just talking about with value investing, I think there are different styles of investing that work in different parts of the market cycle. So coming out of a bear market, value investing could work really well. Mm-hmm. But if you are into a late stage bull market and you're still a value investor, you're likely to run into value traps at that point in time. Right. So uh, what I believe is different markets points in the market cycle require you to use different strategies. And so having six or seven strategies in your uh, toolbox allows you to move between them and utilize the strategy that makes the most sense at that given point in time. So, for example, a couple of years ago, or even last year, early last year, merger arbitrage was a great strategy to use. Um, The interest rates were close to zero. You couldn't get much yield, uh, whether you invested in bonds or whether you put uh, left money in the money market account. So merger arbitrage, which was generating uh, decent annualized returns, was a great strategy uh, at that point in time. This year, because of a change in regulatory risks, yeah. as well as the fact that you can you know, get 4 to 5% in treasury bonds, uh, there isn't uh, that much of a reason to be in the merger arbitrage strategy. Interesting. Um, so, you know, conditions change all the time. And, you know, using these different strategies at different points uh, probably gives you an le- edge up. Yeah. You know, one thing um, that I noticed, obviously, reading through the book, you go through several different of these kind of event-driven strategies. The one that's, I guess, it's not necessarily event-driven, but it, it's notably missing, especially since we're sitting here in a WeWork in San Mateo, we're kind of, you know, in the heart of Silicon Valley, is there is no discussion of, uh, you know, kind of looking at innovative companies, uh, you know, growth, growth companies. How does somebody, you know, who lives, you know, minutes from Palo Alto and Silicon Valley gravitate towards event driven rather than, you know, something more, you know, along the lines of venture capital or even just kind of growth focused investing? That's a good question. I'm going to have to think about that for a few months before I come up with an answer for that. Um, I guess every investor has to understand, uh, what kind of strategies they're most comfortable with. I'm yeah. not a growth investor. Uh, right. You know, uh, value investing is where I started and I gravitated towards uh, growth at a reasonable price and event driven. Um, so making that jump to just pure growth, paying 30, 40 times sales for a company, <laughs> it's just not something I, I can do. Uh, that said, uh, I have companies like uh, Twilio in my portfolio. Um, I see that the insiders of Asana are buying Dustin Moskowitz is buying yet again after he bought at extremely elevated levels. Right. Um, so yeah, th- these companies um, that were formerly growth stocks at some point become growth at a reasonable price and you start seeing the insider buying there. Right. And then I get drawn into those. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, I, I, I'm the same way. That's why, you know, I mean, maybe there's some confirmation bias going on in this discu- discussion. I'm sure there's a fair amount of it. But, um, you know, I, I think if you do gravitate towards risk management, towards looking for a margin of safety, you're looking for these things that kind of confirm your idea that you're that this is a lower risk, higher, you know, you're skewing the risk reward uh, equation into your favor. Let, let's dig a little bit more into the insider activity. This is how I first came across your work. It's something that I've been monitoring since, you know, for over 25 years now, pretty closely. How do you approach um, utilizing insider activity, looking at it and, and looking for signals within how insiders are trading their own stocks? 
Yes. So one of the things most investors come across is um, that famous quote. I think it's uh, Peter Lynch that said it, that insiders might sell for multiple reasons, but they only buy for one reason. They think the stock is going up. Um, I, I don't fully agree with him on that. I've right. tracked this for you know over a decade and having seen uh, insiders tumble quite a bit. Um, the way I think about insider transactions is uh, an idea generation framework. Um, so there are companies that uh, you might have invested in the past uh, that you no longer own or companies you've never heard of before. These insider transactions help uh, bubble them up to the surface. Uh, they show up on your radar. So I see it more as an idea generation framework. And then you have to do your own work after that because the insiders, for some reason, suffer from the same biases that we do. Um, they often tend to be uh, early in their stock, like value investors are. They often uh, are biased uh, and have, are anchored to old prices. So if they stock, saw their stock at 40 or $50, if it suddenly drops to $10, even though it's justified, uh, they can't seem to you know, mentally uh, reconcile that in their heads. And when they see a lower price, they want to get in because they're anchored to a higher price. Right. So I see some of the same pitfalls that I have experienced as an investor um, with the insiders as well. But there are also, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, insiders that I label as predictive insiders that have just a wonderful track record of timing their own shares. And those are people that I, you know, I, I try and follow really closely and, and because it's, it's astounding. You know, I, I can think of a handful of them. Uh, it's astounding how good they are at, you know, buying low and selling high in their own shares. And really it makes a lot of sense that, you know, a CFO or somebody along those lines with such intimate knowledge of the company that they're running would would uh, obviously have um, uh, an edge. <laughs> and, and that's absolutely right. So um, it matters who's buying. Uh, a CEO might sometimes buy because he's he or she is trying to signal the market. Uh, they know that you, Jesse, and I are looking at right. There are fund managers out there that are looking at it. This information is widely reported. So they might sometimes buy because they want to signal the market. But then there are insiders who have excellent track records. They've been in the industry for decades and they understand, uh, you know, uh, cyclical industries well. They might understand exactly what's happening and they've seen this play out before. Um, a really good example would be mid-2020 um, during the pandemic when oil futures, at least uh, Brent, went negative. Right. Um, actually, uh, West Texas Intermediate went negative. Brent wasn't negative. Um and at that point in time, we saw that the insiders of um, you know energy companies, including Harold Harold Ham of Continental Resources, they right. were buying hand over fist, and you could see this across the board with energy companies. I think you picked up on that, and, yeah. and I picked up on it, and it was, it was very profitable to follow the insiders at that point in time. Yeah, I've been especially, um, I guess. Uh, surprised you know by the especially in the refiners it seems like in the refinery stocks there are insiders there that are such good timers i mean that's another one that right you know crack spreads you know do x you know stock prices do y and they step in and buy or sell and and it's usually really good when you see those cluster buying so that's another thing to pay attention to is it's not just one insider you know it's when you see a handful of insiders, you know, and, and there's executives and directors and then 10% owners, all considered insiders. You know, what is kind of, I guess, the most compelling form of kind of cluster buying, in, in your opinion? 
Yeah, so cluster buying is uh, interesting because you see more than one uh, insider that's interested in the stock. You often see a CEO buying and you often see them buying over and over again. But when the CFO joins them, or more importantly, an independent director joins them in buying, uh, that really uh, gets me interested. So independent directors that have an investing uh, track record or that understand how to value stocks or understand how the market works, I think are invaluable um, yeah. inside of buying because they, uh, they have a broader view of the market and the company uh, than the insiders might. The insiders might be myopic. Uh, they understand their company. They understand their industry really well. Right. The independent directors with an investing background uh, who've been with uh, on the board for maybe a decade or two, um, those have a phenomenal track record. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned, um, you know, continental resources, which, you know, eventually Harold Ham, I, you know, I couldn't believe how much stock he was buying, you know, it was 40, 50, 60 million dollars at a time. It's, you know, those types of transactions that I go, okay, I, I got to look into this one. Usually I kind of, you know, I pay attention to a lot of these things, but I wait until they slap me across the face and say, okay, you can't ignore this anymore. You have to start paying attention. What's another example of, you know, one of the most compelling insider signals that you've seen? terms of a specific uh, situation or an example. Right, yeah. Yeah, so another one of those was uh, Lionsgate Entertainment. Um, I noticed that Mark Racheski, who used to be a protege of Carl Icahn uh, and has been in Lionsgate Entertainment for a really long time, has been on the board for a very long time, uh, started buying a lot of stock in the $6 uh, high $5 levels at the end of last year. Uh, and I'd followed that stock for a while. I already held a position, but when I saw, you know, cluster of insiders buying the company, I decided to double down on the position. It made a lot of sense. Uh, the stock was trading at, I think the market cap was probably a little over a billion dollars at that point in time. The, they have a lot of debt, so the enterprise value is closer to five billion. Um, but they have three divisions. They have uh, library movies. Uh, if you remember, La La Land is one of their movies. Mm -hmm. Way back when, there was a Western movie called 310 to Yuma uh, mm -hmm. with Russell Crowe. It's a great movie. Love that one. Yeah. So you, you, they have this huge library of old hits. Um, and uh, so that library generates close to $900 million a year for them uh, mm -hmm. in revenue. Uh, you also have the studio division, which continues to churn out uh, sequel after sequel. So John Wick 4 came out earlier this year. Right. It's done very well for them. <laughs> Later this year, they'll have another Hunger Games movie that's going to come out. Uh, so they're very good at like coming out with Saw, Saw 10, Saw 20, whatever the whole right. thing <laughs> yeah. will. Right. Um, so they have the movie studio division that every once in a while ends up with a sleeper hit like La La Land or 310 to Yuma that generates a good amount of money for them. And then they have the Stars uh, division, a company that they acquired for $4.4 billion dollars. And the entire market cap of Lionsgate is well below what they paid for stars. Yeah. So you have all of this. Um, and so when you look at the sum of the parts valuation, uh, the stock was just really cheap. And it, it made a whole lot of sense why the insiders were buying. The only issue is Wall Street has turned off on some of the parts. Uh, they've looked at that and seen that, you know, not quite work out unless there's a catalyst. Uh -huh. And in this case, there was a catalyst where uh, the Lionsgate was planning on spinning off the stars division. And um, as many companies are likely to do when they spin off a division, they load it up with a lot of debt, uh -huh. uh, and that could leave the parent company um, quite well capitalized. Okay, interesting. Well, you, you know, uh, 
spinoffs are another area I want to talk about. But before we transition, um, you mentioned Duskin, Dustin Moskovitz and um, Asana. It's one that I was paying attention to because it, he started buying early into the the bear market. I think it was early 2022. I saw some just massive buys. And I was, you know, it was when I looked at it and I go, I, I just can't really understand, you know, why he's he's buying now. What 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 do you make of his his transactions? Because I, I think there are high signal transactions, and this is one I kind of dismissed as as some, there's something else going on here. At least I don't understand it. How, how do you view that situation? So he openly admitted uh, that he made a mistake with. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree with you. I looked at it and I looked at the valuation. It just made no sense. Yeah. Um, he made his billions of dollars uh, as a Facebook, I believe, co-founder. Uh, mm-hmm. so he's a billionaire. He, he could afford to spend maybe a few million or a few hundred million by right. Asana shares. Right. Um, I don't know if he was doing it to signal the market or because he was just so bullish on the fact that Asana would, you know, essentially capture the project management market, if you will. Okay. Uh, but there are multiple competitors in that space. There's Monday.com that's doing quite well. There's Smartsheet. Um, there's obviously the old Microsoft uh, products out there that you could use for yeah. management. Um, but I think one of the things that investors were probably missing with Asana is they were expanding their product portfolio. So they were no longer just a product management or project management company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been expanding into multiple verticals. And I think that's probably what he saw. Mm-hmm. Um, he actually bought again, uh, finally, with the stock down uh, close to $20. His prior purchases were uh, anywhere up to the $100 level. So it's down right. 80 90% from value he was buying. But he very recently bought almost $1.8 million worth of shares again. Um, I, I think the space is big enough for multiple companies to uh, coexist in. And I think if he continues to expand uh, the product portfolio and becomes this one-stop solution uh, for companies, um, the, the company is probably quite viable downstream. Mm-hmm. It's just not at a valuation that I would get Right. Well, the other thing I, you know, I, I think about with his purchases was he was really the only, you know, person doing any any serious buying, uh, you know, a, a year ago or early into 2022. And I thought, shoot, he's skewing my my overall, you know, buy sell uh, ratio. <laughs> you know, so let's talk about kind of the insider activity in aggregate can be a signal on its own as well, right? Absolutely. Um, and I love that, that part of the analysis that we do. Every week we put together a sell-by ratio. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try to understand how much are insiders selling, how much are they buying. Uh, typically, you'll find that insiders sell anywhere from 10 to 20 times as much as they're buying. And that makes sense because they get awarded a lot of stock um, you know, as part of uh, options, RSUs, uh, employee stock purchase plans. So they have an outsized portion of their wealth tied to their own stock and they're constantly selling. Um, So that doesn't mean much that they're selling 10 to 20 times, even 30 times as much as they're buying. The times where it gets really interesting is when they actually in aggregate start buying more than they're selling. So you saw this happen in uh, late March uh, 2020 during the depths of the pandemic where the market had almost dropped 20% in a matter of a few days or a few weeks. And the insiders were buying hand over fist. So for the first time in a decade, I noticed that insider buying in aggregate was higher than insider selling. And that was a very positive signal for me. And I used that signal uh, to start buying. I created a nice watch list of companies I wanted to buy. 
got to execute on some of that, but never expected the market to come roaring back so quickly. Right. Well, you make a great point in the book that, yeah, I mean, I think the average sell to buy ratio is 20 or, you know, somewhere in there, there's 20 times more, you know, in dollar, dollar terms, uh, sales versus buys. And so when you actually saw that ratio go below one, and there was in aggregate more buying than selling that, I mean, that's a very rare, you know, extreme you know, bullish signal. Um, uh, you know, which is another, I think, interesting thing to pay pay attention to. So, you know, the the aggregate can be um, some something also that provides an interesting signal. Um, let Let's switch up to uh, risk arbitrage because I think this is this is something that Warren Buffett has also written about for many many years. It almost seems like a way for him to put cash to work to just try and uh, you know generate a, a decent return on that cash without. Um, committing to taking on general market risk or, you know, these types of things. So can you just explain what, what is risk arbitrage and how, how do you, how do you see it uh, as a, as a tool? Yeah. So at any given point in time in the U S we track about uh, 70 to 80 different active deals uh, that have been announced um, on any given week. You could see anywhere from three to five new deals announced. So there are companies that are constantly merging with other companies in a merger of equals, if you will, or in some cases, it's larger companies buying smaller companies. This could be uh, pharma companies like Pfizer uh, buying a smaller uh, clinical stage of biotech um, that might be in phase three trials and that is getting ready to get its drug out there if it is FDA approved. And that kind of a merger or acquisition makes a lot of sense for all parties because the smaller biotech can leverage the marketing and distribution expertise of the big pharma company. So what you see in these kind of deals um, is you might see uh, that the stock is trading anywhere from, let's say, 3 to 5% below where the deal price is. So if the deal price was 10 bucks, it might be trading at like 950 or 970, um, and you might pick up 3 to 5% on that, which is not a lot of money, uh, but considering the fact that most deals... Uh, at least before the regulatory environment changed recently, right. used to close in about 120 days, mm-hmm. and pharma deals close even faster than that. Yeah. So if you assume you pick up something for a 3% spread, and the deal closes in three months, on an annualized basis, that's almost 12% returns, uh, right. low-risk activity. And the reason I say a low-risk activity is based on our uh, data, which spans about 13 years, 95% of all deals close. Right. Uh, it's only 5% of the deals that don't close. Even in 2020, during the pandemic year, I, I believe it was 91 or 92% of the deals that closed. Hmm. So it's a very low-risk activity that can generate anywhere from 10 to 15% returns. Obviously, it goes through cycles. Um, it depends on who's in power in Washington and what the regulatory environment looks like. Uh, it depends on what's happening with the interest rates. So all of that have uh, an impact on uh, your outcomes with the strategy. Um, there were a couple of deals where Pfizer acquired this company called Arena Pharmaceuticals and it also acquired Trillium uh, Therapeutics. And both of those deals yielded, uh, I believe, anywhere from 5 to 6% returns. And uh-huh. the deals closed in 88 days and 86 days after announcement. Oh, wow. A very short time period. Yeah. Um, uh, great risk return profile and excellent returns. So yeah. that, that's what attracts me to merger arbitrage. The the tourist who enters this strategy often is attracted to the deals with the largest spreads. Yeah. Activision Blizzard, uh, Microsoft is trying to acquire uh, the company. 
and the UK's uh, regulatory authority is trying to block the deal, the FTC is trying to block it in the US, and so the spread on that deal is high, but it's those larger spreads that usually attract people. Um, mm-hmm. And um, just as Joel Greenblatt wrote in his book, uh, when you get into some of those, uh, the chance of failure is higher. And right. You get your hand burned. Right. Unfortunately, too many people then shy away from the strategy, having tried it out. Yeah. The larger spread mergers, which is not exactly the way you should approach it. Yeah, it's almost like when you see a stock with, uh, you know, unsustainable dividend, it's it's probably because it's going to about to be cut. <laughs> you know, like, you know, there's just high, higher, higher risk there. Um, let's talk about that. So in this environment, right, it seems like the, yeah, the there has been a renewed antitrust framework or a different uh, view uh, that the FTC has taken in, in recent years towards um, a lot of these acquisitions because, you know, for so long, I, I guess, you know, especially Silicon Valley companies have just rolled up multiple acquisitions for years, dozens and dozens of companies and kind of buying up, you know, you have companies maybe like Meta that have, you know, bought up competing products like Instagram and things to kind of solidify their moat, uh, you know, to use another Warren Buffett term. Um, how does, how is this renewed framework, I guess, uh, at the FTC affecting uh, merger spreads and things? Is, are you seeing it kind of materialize in the market aside from just the Activision blizzard, but like, is it across the board or is it really just in the case of these kind of big tech firms? No, it's across the board yeah. because all kinds of deals are getting challenged. Uh, pharma deals are getting challenged. Insurance company deals are getting challenged. Um, yeah, the tech deals are getting challenged. Um, so Amazon is trying to acquire uh, iRobot. Uh, so that deal has a mm-hmm. massive spread. I think it has a 50% spread. Oh, wow. Yeah. It closes. Uh, when Google was trying to buy Fitbit, that deal took forever to close. It right. closed, but it took a really long time to close. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, recently, they allowed um, Amazon to buy uh, One uh, One Life Healthcare, a mm-hmm. company that's behind One Medical. So they allowed okay. them to buy a healthcare services company, but the iRobot deal is stuck in regulatory limbo at this point in time. I see. So, you know, the the risks are increased to getting these deals closed, so spreads are wider. That's a, you know, brings me to another um, point which you make in the book, which is one of the things that's important to pay attention to is the trend in the deal spread. Why, why is that? Absolutely. Uh, so there's been academic research that's been done, and it's something that I see practically as well as I follow these strategies and as I um, have exposure to merger arbitrage in my portfolio. The deals that are at risk uh, often start out with a pretty large spread. So you see them with a large spread and you see that spread, uh, you know, expanding over time Mm -hmm. and then the deal fails. Right. And the deals that are uh, less likely to fail, you you see the reverse in terms of the trend of the spread. Okay. Uh, You start seeing that they start out with a smaller spread and the spread continues to contract um, as it approaches approval. Um, so the spread uh, direction or the trend of the spread is actually quite useful. It's the yeah, the market pricing either more risk or less risk, and you want to see it pricing less risk as you get closer to the yeah the, the proposed deal you that's know exactly times. Right. Okay. The other thing that's changed with the regulatory environment is way back when uh, when the regulators, whether it's FTC, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, or the Department of Justice, uh, either one of those step in to block a deal. And when they used to sue to block a deal, so for example, Staples trying to merge with Office Depot, that got blocked. Um, The companies would then say, that's the end of the road, we're going to call it off. 
But now we are seeing this uh, trend where companies are challenging the FTC or the DOJ in court and right. winning in many cases. Right. So United Healthcare uh, wanted to acquire Change Healthcare, and uh, that deal was blocked. Uh, but they've decided to fight it in court and won and closed the deal. So we're seeing more of that happening, which right. is highly unusual, not something we had seen before. Yeah, and I think I remember reading something a few months ago about the FTC kind of going back to Congress and saying, you know, we only have so much so much ability here to block these things. Uh, some of the laws probably need to be changed if we if they want to uh, limit uh, you know, anti-competitive um, mergers in a bigger way. Um there's also, I think, probably the fact that, uh, you know, you can get 5% risk-free on, you know, short-term money now makes risk arbitrage less attractive from that standpoint. So uh, spreads are probably wider on deals today um, just to kind of because they need to compensate above and beyond the risk-free rate. Is that right? That, that's exactly right. One of the components that goes into a spread besides regulatory risk is uh, the time value of money. Right. Uh, and so as you mentioned, with treasuries at 4 or 5%, if you could get a certificate of deposit at a bank at 4%, uh, there's less interest in getting into a deal with a 3% spread unless it's going to close in 90 days and your annualized returns are 12%. Right. Um, so I, I used to have a threshold of 15% annualized returns for mm-hmm. merger arbitrage deals. Uh, that's what I used to do a long time ago. As interest rates came down to zero, I had to move my threshold down and move it down to 12% and then 10%. Yeah. Because in a zero in, uh, interest rate environment, a 10% annualized rate is still very attractive. Right. Uh, so to your point, the reverse happens as interest rates go up. And now my threshold has to go up to 12 to 15% to yeah. compensate for the risk from the regulatory uh, environment yeah. as well as uh, what's happening with the interest rates. And, and so w- with these deals, you typically you know make you know whatever that is, 12 to 15% annualized when when they close when they don't close you know you typically there's a you know obviously a loss associated in most cases um unless there's competition for some for a company and and you know there's more bidders to step up that might have more luck getting a deal closed what what is the what does the downside look like for when deals don't close you pretty much lose your shirt you <laughs> see a pretty big drop. Uh, yeah. It depends on the premium the company paid and what was happening to the company yeah. before the acquisition was announced. So you could typically see a drop of 30 to 50 percent. Right. Um, so here, here's where it gets interesting. There are certain deals I get into where I, I look at the company and I say, even if the deal doesn't go through, I'm perfectly happy owning the stock at this price. Right. Uh, and Activision Blizzard is a great example of that. Uh, okay. Um, they had some issues with uh, sexual harassment lawsuits uh, and you know employee issues right before the Microsoft deal was announced. Yeah. So the stock had come down to about $65 a share. Microsoft announced an acquisition at $95 a share, which looked very attractive. But the stock didn't go all the way up there. It, it hung out uh, at the $80 level for quite quite a long period of time, right. which is when uh, Buffett bought it. Okay. Um, I waited till it got to about $75 because uh, the way I looked at it, it was a 50-50% probability of the deal going through. If it did not go through, I figured the break price could be about $65, which is where it was before um, the transaction was announced. If it went through, I, I got to pick up $20. Right. So it was $10 downside, $20 upside. But then the $65 was uh, really not um, 
the real price for Activision. It was a depressed price because of the lawsuits and the sexual harassment issues that they were having. Right. Uh, and now you see that Activision is performing very well. They came out with their Diablo. Uh, maybe it's three or four. I don't right. games anymore. So yeah. I don't know which one it is. Right. But they came out with Diablo. That's done very well. The Call of Duty franchise continues to do well. Yeah. So the company was just positioned really well, where even if the deal fell, the actual value, intrinsic value of the company was between $75 and $80. Okay. So that's where it gets interesting value. Yeah. It can drop 30%, but if you do your work on the company and you feel like it's a great value, whether the deal goes through or not, you get the upside if the deal goes through in a short period of time. You get the upside over a longer period of time if, if you feel the company is worth um, buying. Interesting. Yeah. Um so it's kind of combining, you know, the traditional value uh, analysis um, with the merger is, you know, potentially a catalyst for, for short-term profits. Interesting. Yeah, in some cases. Um, often that's not how it plays out, sure. which is what, one of the reasons I'm not an iRobot. Uh, right. 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 And, and that's interesting, too, because there are probably situations where the company has a terrific amount of value for a company like Amazon, but as a standalone company, it maybe doesn't have much value because it doesn't generate cash flow or, or whatnot. But um, speaking of generating cash flow, let's let's switch up to um, buybacks. I know this is another focus that you have at your, your Wednesday report you put out um, very much like Insider Weekends, uh, where you highlight the companies that have, have uh, announced buybacks in the previous week and kind of the most interesting um, cases there. Why is uh, why are buybacks an area of, of focus for you? Yeah, just like other event-driven strategies, this gives me uh, new ideas that I might not think of otherwise. So it, this is telling me that a company um, as a whole uh, thinks that its stock is undervalued uh, and that you know they would be better off having a buyback authorized uh, if they want to buy in the future. So not all buyback announcements translate into actual buybacks, but it gives the management team the flexibility to step in and buy uh, stock. Um, you, you see this often where the insiders are buying stock with their own money and then the company might announce a buyback. So you see this combination of a company wanting to buy back its own stock, even as the insiders are buying. And we classify those as double-dipper companies. Yeah. Double-dipping on both ends. Right. Uh, we have a, spe a special screen set up uh, to find those kind of companies for us. Yeah. A good example uh, during the pandemic and after the pandemic was uh, Avis Budget Group, the car rental company. Yeah. They, they were buying back their own stock pretty aggressively. And at the same time, the insiders were buying as well. Um, so I like, to, I like to look at buybacks to try to understand which companies think that their stock is undervalued and want to return value through buybacks which are more tax efficient than uh, special dividends or uh, increasing the dividend. I'm so glad that you brought up the double dippers because I think those are some very compelling opportunities. And it's also the opposite of one of the things that I see and I have the biggest problem with, one of the things I have a problem with in markets is you see buybacks that are not economic at companies. And they're essentially, you see massive insiders selling at the same time companies implementing a buyback. And essentially the company, you know, the executives seem to be using the company's money to help them, you know, uh, be able to liquidate at uh, potentially higher prices. And so I think that this is where, you know, it's, it's really important to kind of put these two strategies together and see, okay, companies buying, but what are insiders doing in relation to the company? Because if it really is a good time to be buying back stock, 
insiders should be also putting their money where their mouths are, their individual money, not just company money. That's exactly right. Uh, I really enjoyed your interview with Ben Hunt uh, about the busting out. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. Heard that phrase before, the busting out part of it, but that, that was a really fun conversation to follow. And that's one of those examples where a company that should not have been buying back stock uh, kept aggressively you know, allocating capital to buybacks. Uh, even as the insiders were probably selling at the same time. Right. So, so to your point, the double dipper is the reverse of what you were talking about, where the executives are using the buybacks uh, to, you know, exit their own uh, personal holdings. Uh, and the, the double dipper gives us the ability to look at companies where both the insiders are buying and uh, management team as a group has decided that the company should buy back stock. So everybody's uh, interests are aligned, if you will. Yeah, you know the 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 buyback decision is. You know, part of the larger capital allocation decision on the part of management. And I think, you know, I, I, and I know management changes and things are another event driven thing you pay close attention to. But I think that, you know, looking at buybacks as a capital allocation decision is just critical because you can see companies that are using excess free cash flow they can't put to work in other areas for buybacks. Or you can see companies that are going into massive debt in order to, you know, do buybacks. And those are two totally different, different decisions, leveraging up the balance sheet versus utilizing excess free cash flow. Um, let's, I guess, transition. Well, b- before we do, I want to get into those management um, changes and things. But you write about um, uh, in the buyback chapter of your book, the Uber cannibals, right? Well, who, who are these companies and why are they important to kind of pay attention to? Yeah, so the Uber cannibals are the companies that are buying back a significant amount of their stock on a very consistent basis. Um, so a lot of people are familiar with like the auto nations of the world. Um, I believe the home builder NVR is another one that is constantly buying back stock. A more recent example, as I mentioned, was the Avis Budget Group. So you find these companies that, you know, where buybacks as part of their capital allocation strategy, uh, they might not favor dividends uh, quite as much and they would rather buy back stock. Um, you know, Berkshire Hathaway is a perfect example of that. They, they don't do dividends, but every time the stock fell below, uh, there was a threshold, I think Buffett used to follow it, it was either 1.2 or 1.3 times tangible book value. Right. Every time the stock, Berkshire Hathaway stock fell below that level, um, you know, they would go and buy back stock. Yeah. Um, so you look at these management teams that have been there for a long time that have a consistent history of buying back stock and doing well. Um, so it's very encouraging to see that. Um, not everybody could be Apple where you leverage up the balance sheet a little bit yeah. um, and, and buy back stock. But they also had tremendous free cash flows, which companies like Bed Bath & Beyond did not have. So when we write about buybacks every week, we also sometimes call out companies that would be better served by paying down debt on the balance sheet rather than right. going out and buying back. Stuff. Yeah. Or reinvesting in the business. I mean, that was another thing that Ben and I talked about as I see companies that are engaging in massive buybacks while their businesses just kind of languish and, and age and, and, you know, they're not uh, in reinvesting in the business probably quite as much as they should be. That's exactly right. Bed Bath & Beyond would have done better to think through uh, their inventory. Uh, wasn't exactly the best selection. <laughs> right. To find yeah. The stores weren't quite as uh, run down as Sears was towards right. its end. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. They could invest in the stores. They could invest in new businesses. They could refresh their inventory or their buying patterns. There's so much they could do on the business side of things. Yeah. 
um, not just on the you know the balance sheet structure. Well, this seems like an, a natural transition to the management um, work that you do. Uh, you know, something that I probably don't pay enough attention to, but. Um, Analyzing management's efficacy and capital allocation and things is absolutely critical to long-term investors, but also management changes at companies. What what is it um, that you may, I guess, pay closest attention to when it comes to uh, understanding the management of a company? Yeah, so just like you just said, this this was an area I wasn't paying enough attention to. Uh, I guess some of what's happening with management translates into the kind of margins that the company uh, has when compared to competitors and whether margins are expanding or contracting, or you see it in the return and return on equity numbers. So some of those margin and return on equity numbers captures management effectiveness. But uh, to your point, I wanted to pay more attention to it. And when I want to pay more attention to a strategy, I end up writing about it. So I start collecting no. data and I write about it. And by writing about it every week, it forces me to pay a little bit extra attention to what's happening with management changes. A couple of things I look for with management changes are, um, you know, the size of the company and how long it might take management to turn things around. Uh, The track record of the new CEO or the new CFO that's coming on board, uh, that makes a huge difference. Uh, whether the business is, you know, fundamentally viable or not. Um, if if it's a melting ice cube, uh, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how good a management team you bring in. Right. It's likely you're going to continue to melt and uh, they'll be forced into bankruptcy at some point. So one, one really good example we wrote about at the start of uh, a couple of months ago was uh, GE. So GE had been, you know, pretty much written off after, you know, Jeff M. Melt and his... Um, era of having one corporate jet following another corporate jet <laughs> just in case the first one broke down um, and so you had uh, a management transition there and Larry Kulp who used to manage Danaher was brought in and he had a tremendous track record at Danaher uh, where you know o- over a decade uh, you saw everything improving uh, revenue went up earnings per share went up uh, and you, he was just this very well respected manager so he was brought into GE it took him over three years or three and a half years to start to move uh, the company in the right direction. And he's been doing it through um, spin-offs. Uh, he's been doing it by investing in uh, the aerospace division and so on and so forth. And he did start buying last year, uh, last May. He started buying stock. Mm-hmm. And I should have followed him into it. The yeah. stock was up nearly 50% since then. In typical insider fashion, it continued to dip after his purchase. Right. Often see that the stock drops 10%, 20%, even 30% after some of these insiders buy. But eventually, in the long run, it, it works out well if the insider is truly knowledgeable about what he's doing and has uh, tremendous industry experience. Yeah. Um, you also make the point in the book about... Um, Looking at uh, you know kind of owner operators, founder led companies versus companies being run by um, you know managers that have been brought in to just run the company. Um, what is it about you know founders that uh, that seems to you know be uh, I guess more of a, a you know a compelling setup for outside investors? Yeah, for founders who have taken the company from inception to going public and, and you know, remaining public and growing through all of those pressures, um, they, they have a lot of uh, money and 
their passion invested in the company. And pride. Right, yeah. um, so I've often seen really good examples. Uh, Massimo is a medical devices company that I came across probably 12 years ago when Joe uh, Kiani, the CEO, was buying. And that's done extremely well. Yeah. Um, there was Martin Rothblatt at United Therapeutics. Uh-huh. Um, and I tend to avoid biotech companies because they're outside. <laughs> right. Uh, but I saw her buying and the financials made a lot of sense. Yeah. So I've seen over and over again where the founder steps in to buy and it's, it makes a lot of sense and those companies do well. You also have situations where the founders are buying, for, for example, right now, um, James DeFranco is buying shares of Dish Network, um, where he keeps buying very large amounts of shares, but the stock is not doing well because the company is not doing well. Right. And it's supposed to be an asset play because they have a lot of spectrum assets, uh, but the core business of satellite TV just isn't working right now. Yeah. So even there, you have to, I think, do your own work to understand what the situation is. Uh, but I really love founder, CEO, insider purchases. Yeah, one of the classic examples that I've I've given for for years now is you look at Intel under Andy Grove and Intel after Andy Grove, <laughs> and it's you know he retired and sold his stock. You know the stock in two thousand and twenty three years later, the stock price is still below that that peak level. Um, you're absolutely right. There's just a difference between the passion and pride. Uh, but then again, I think you can you see times when outside managers are brought in, and perhaps they buy a lot of stock, and they essentially become owner operators through you know investing the majority of their net worth in shares, and that can kind of be a similar dynamic, right? It, it could be. Uh, those situations are probably rarer and harder. Right. To <laughs> yes. Yeah. Operators. Yeah. Even those are not uh, so common. Uh, but yeah. the situation you are talking about where the outside manager comes in and ends up with, with a large stake in the company, those are harder to find. Uh, I'm hoping Larry Culp becomes one of those. Yeah. He, although the company is so big, it will be very difficult for yeah. him to um, get a large stake. Well, I was, yeah, I was specifically thinking of maybe the best example in my, my memory of a, a kind of a confluence of a number of these different things where um, Bill Stiritz came from Ralston Purina. Uh, which was, you know, one of the best performing companies of the 80s and 90s and uh, took over the CEO job at Ball Corp in the late 90s. And, you know, during the dot-com bubble, you couldn't have found a more boring, you know, contrast to, right? I mean, maker of glass jars and aluminum cans, nobody was interested in it. But Bill Sturtz took over the job, brought in his management team, bought like literally tens of millions of dollars of stock with his own money, invested a huge chunk of his net worth in it. Um, and, and, uh, and they started buying back stock. And so you had a confluence of all these things. And you could look at Ballcorp performance for since 2000. It's like, it's up like 40 fold in the last 20 plus years. And you just see that, that is really the value of when you see, okay, let's bring in a successful CEO with a great track record. He's going to invest the majority of his net worth in it. And they're going to use the excess cash flow to, to buy back stock and, and do magical things. So it's, it's, a uh, it's, it's yeah. I mean, when you when you put these things together, it can be very valuable. Uh, yeah, that, that's an amazing story, uh, Jesse. Uh, and another thing to think about in these situations with a new CEO coming on board is uh, you have to look at um, the SEC filings to understand what the motivations might be behind buying back stock. Yeah. Um, or buying stock uh, on the open market. I noticed this insider transactions. Uh, I believe it was a Pinterest where the CEO made a five million dollar purchase. 
that seemed like a pretty large purchase for a new CEO that had just come on. And I read through the footnotes of the filing, and it's always important to read the footnotes. And there was something in his contract that required him to buy. Yes, the yes. So checking out the footnotes to understand someone's motivation. Oh, I've been, I've been fooled by that in the past. Where, you know, and, and not just checking the footnotes. You know, call up the investor relations department and say, hey, is this you know, of their own free will buying, or is this part of their employment agreement? You know, um, but yeah, absolutely. Paying attention to that is key. There's a couple other areas in the book that you cover um, that I want to touch on. And, and, and uh, I think at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned Joel Greenblatt's um, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius. He highlights spinoffs in that book. And that's something that, um, you know, when his book came out 20 years ago or something, you know, it's something you're still paying close attention to because it is another area of opportunity. That's exactly right. So spinoffs are very interesting. Um, you get an opportunity to invest either in the spinoff or in some cases actually the parent company because a parent company might spin off uh, an undesirable asset or they might load up the spinoff with a bunch of debt and that might leave the parent company more attractive. So you get this situation where you could look at either the spinoff or the parent and try to make a decision on which, which um, company to get into and it's a catalyst. Um, a really interesting situation uh, where multiple of our strategies came together was in Biohaven last year. Mm-hmm. Biden was buying this company called Biohaven and there was a nice little spread on the stock. I believe it was a $140 acquisition uh, and it was trading at $132. So you could pick up $8 on the spread. But Pfizer was not interested in some of the other products that BioHaven had. They were only interested in the migraine products that BioHaven mm. already had an approved product for. So they said, you know, we're going to spin off all the rest of these products into a separate company. And we're going to give you some cash on top of that. <laughs> so you had a situation where you could pick up the spread on the deal if it closed. And you ended up with this free spin off that you got with, loaded with cash, if you will, mm-hmm. in this case. And it had this pipeline of products. Um, what I saw was an insider uh, bought shares right before the merger closed. So he did not uh, wait uh, for that spread. He he waited until pretty much right before closing and he started buying stock. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the deal closed, Biohaven was spun out, and then the insiders of Biohaven, the new company was also called Biohaven, just to confuse info. Right, yeah. Um, So the insiders of Biohaven, the new company, were also buying. um, And that stock, you know, we had assumed the spin-off was worth about 4 or $5 a share. It's uh, up to about $24 right now. Okay. So you got that almost for free and it's worth 24 right now. Yeah. And you had an opportunity to pick it up right before the deal closed, right after the deal closed. And so this was a confluence of a merger situation with the spin-off with insider buying. Um, so, so, so yeah. Every once in a while, those really fun uh, situations come yeah, and, and that's one of the things I think that m- makes this area for opportunity more so compelling is that a lot of times these things are confusing, right? They're not easy to understand the different dynamics of, you know, what the, the remaining companies are going to look like and how much, you know, I'm, I'm going to own of each one. And, and so, uh, you know, there are not a lot of people that are willing to do the work to kind of look into them. And as you mentioned, right, and as uh, Greenblatt mentions in his book, a lot of times the case with spinoffs is, uh, you know, uh, institutional managers are essentially forced to sell the spinoff company. So there's a period of time uh, where that, that the new stock uh, can sell off for a time just from that kind of systematic selling. That creates opportunity. 
You're exactly right. So there's a massive selling pressure on the stock and waiting for a while before you pick up the spin-off makes a lot of sense. Uh, Greenblatt talks about that. Rich Howe, that run, who runs a service called Stock Spin-Off Investing, he has a formula that he looks at where I believe it's like 50% or 75% of the volume has traded and then he buys it. Mm-hmm. Um, in his opinion, I think it's only a few weeks uh, before you get a chance to buy the spin-off. There are others that have done more quantitative work and have found that, you know, you probably want to wait six months mm-hmm. uh, up to a year. I think Greenblatt is uh, much longer than that. He talks about anywhere from one to two years okay. after the spin-off occurs uh, that you would buy uh, the stock. So one thing that turns people off on spin-offs is the spin-off happens and then the spin-off drops in price and people think, you know, th- th- this doesn't make sense. It's going down. It's not worth a lot of money. Right. But that's the whole idea. You, you yeah. wait till uh, the, that buying, the selling pressure has abated. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of get that systematic selling pressure, which creates depressed sentiment among investors, which creates even more selling. And, and it's just kind of a, a structural opportunity that's created by the, the transaction itself. Um, you also in the book, you know, mention um, SPACs. And my first thought when I saw, okay, he's covering SPACs is this is a short sell opportunity. <laughs> because the, my experience with SPACs over the last year is wait till a deal's announced, wait till, you know, you get some manic euphoric buying and then, you know, sell the heck out of the, out of the shares. But, but there's a lot more to it than that. And, and outside of a SPAC mania, there are opportunities kind of on both sides of the market. So talk about SPACs and how you, you view them as another area of uh, kind of event driven opportunity. Yeah. So there are uh, different opportunities with SPACs, as you mentioned, Um, you could buy a SPAC uh, when it's announced and you could pick up uh, warrants for free, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then once the SPAC finds an operating business to merge into, um, you can choose to vote for the deal or you know decide to get your $10 back uh, and you get to keep the warrants for free. Yeah. That, that's the appeal that you pick up maybe a few uh, pennies al- along the way and then you pick up free warrants. After the actual uh, merger happens with an operating company, what people have found is most of these drop uh, quite dramatically, if you will. There was a research paper somebody shared with me that talked about how post-deal SPACs dropped anywhere from 50 to 55%. Mm-hmm. When I looked at our own data, it was closer to 70%. Okay. The drop was massive. Right. Um, so I started focusing on SPACs as a way to identify short-selling opportunities. Okay. Um, a note of caution, short-selling is not for uh, the faint of heart. It's right. not for most investors. Um, it often takes a really long time to play out. Uh, you have borrowing costs, um, you know, you have uh, meme stock uh, related. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. deal with. So there's a lot of issues there. But if you're looking for uh, adding a few short positions to your portfolio, uh, the SPAC area provides for fertile hunting grounds. Yeah. One of these companies that I found was WeWork. We're sitting here in a WeWork. <laughs> right. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, uh, Two serial entrepreneurs here in San Francisco invited me to a WeWork um, in the Salesforce Tower uh, for a meeting. And I went up there and it was just a stunning, beautiful building with great views of the bay. And I started thinking about WeWork because a friend of mine who uses uh, WeWork as an office space also mentioned that you know, it looks really interesting. So I pulled out the balance sheet. I looked at the amount of debt that Adam Newman had uh, loaded onto the company. 
and it made no sense. It did not matter if WeWork uh, moved up its occupancy rate from, I believe it was 56% at that point, right. 100%. And jacked up the prices it charges its members. There was just no way for this company. To <laughs> right, yeah. Right? Uh, great business model. I think they provide uh, wonderful services. I use their services myself. Yeah. But when you look at it as an investment, it makes no sense. Right. So they tried to go public uh, through a traditional IPO, and they had all the community adjusted EBITDA kind of. Right. right. Uh, all sorts of red flags that turned yeah. investors yeah. off. Right. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. It was great. <laughs> right. um, and so the traditional IPO did not work. And so they went public through a SPAC, uh, which is often what uh, science project companies like to do. Right. Yes. <laughs> through a SPAC. Um, not, not to say there aren't real companies that do it. There's a bowling alley operator called Bolero that went public through a SPAC that, yeah. that has done well. Yeah. And Chinook Therapeutics went public through a reverse merger uh, and got recently acquired by Novartis. So there are exceptions to the rule. If sure. You know. um, but coming back to WeWork, uh, I decided to short it uh, through put options because I didn't want to get caught in a meme uh, situation where it suddenly uh, quadrupled in price yeah. and forced me to sell. Um, and sure enough, it's down to pennies. Uh, right. The CEO that was brought in to potentially turn around the company has decided to leave. Yeah. Potential, um, you know, liquidation-focused investors that have gotten in now. Um, I think it might be an interesting company to look into uh, post-bankruptcy right. if they decide to de- declare bankruptcy, right? Um, and, and see if the balance sheet looks more viable at that point. Yeah, well, you know, when I was reading through um, the SPAC chapter and just listening to you talk about it, I was thinking about how valuable it is to just come full circle, I think, with our conversation, is to still pay attention to insider behavior in SPACs. Because, uh, you know, Virgin Galactic was one of these stocks that just, you know, was, was a SPAC and just did, did phenomenally well. It was, you know, the the maybe the the perfect culmination of you know the rocket emojis and things that we were seeing in 2021 and then you see uh you know chamath unload uh, a ton of stock and obviously you know as you mentioned in the peter lynch quote there's there's tons of different reasons for investors to to sell but when i see somebody who is the uh you know the the promoter of the of the SPAC or the, you know, the, the main founder of the company, you know, sell a majority, uh, you know, a very large stake in a short period of time. It's something I always pay attention to. And I think in, in this case with SPACs, it was, it was pretty clear that, you know, I, he, he didn't have a lot of confidence that the price was sustainable, the stock price. You're absolutely right. I just pulled up uh, Virgin Galactic's um, insider transactions and Chamath was selling in December 2020. He sold 3.8 million shares for almost $100 million. He was selling again in uh, March 2021. This time it was 6.2 million shares for $212 million, if you will. Right. So um, you're right. Looking at insiders both from the buying and the selling side makes sense. And on the selling side, I like to look at companies where it's a cluster of insiders selling. Right. Uh, that are not selling because they're exercising options or they're selling yeah. RSUs, but they're just selling existing positions that they have uh, when the stock is already trending down. Yes. So when the stock trend is down, insiders sell- are selling and they're selling uh, non-options related. Uh, yeah. 
You know, yeah, I think that's a really good point is that when you see insiders selling into weakness, that can be a sign that, uh, you know, well, if the stock's down, you know, and they're telling us on the conference calls that, you know, stock's cheap, why are, why are they not buying? Why are they selling is a, is a pretty big red flag. Exactly. Follow the money rather than listen to what they're saying. Follow what they're doing. It makes a lot of sense. Actions speak louder than words. <laughs> that's that's one of the reasons why I followed it for so closely for so long. And it's one of the reasons why I value your work so much. You, you write in the book, and obviously you read a ton yourself, but you write that when, when you do read uh, investment-related books, you always look for two or three key takeaways from whatever it is you're reading. What do you think should be the key takeaways for the those um, reading your work? Idea generation, um, you know, keeping an open mind um, to idea generation, letting them come from multiple different places uh, would be the one uh, key takeaway. The second key takeaway is markets are constantly evolving. And so being open to using different strategies at different points of the market cycle uh, would help portfolios quite a bit. Um, because when you are stuck with one strategy, you put on a value investor hat or a growth at a reasonable price value ha- hat or a growth investor hat, you will find that there'll be potentially years when things don't work uh, based on your strategy. Right. So having that mental flexibility to move between strategies um, could you could help you a lot uh, in terms of making sure your portfolio yeah. is constantly growing, or at least you're protected on the downside. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the book doesn't come out for a year. Well, I have to have you back on the podcast when it does come out so that we can, you know, uh, help people uh, find it. But in the meantime, where can people um, uh, find more about uh, about you and and follow your work? Sure. Uh, So I run a website called Inside Arbitrage, and we have a ton of content, both for free uh, subscribers as well as uh, paid subscribers. The paid subscribers get a combination of tools as well as content. On the free side, we write about buyback Wednesdays every Wednesday, about companies that are buying back stock. We talk about uh, C-suite transitions on Thursdays, uh, so people can understand what's happening there. Uh, we have a Friday wrap that's a very popular post on the on the site where we aggregate information about event-driven strategies across uh, the Twitterverse. Um, so we, we go look and find out what Jesse Felder is talking about uh, and include some of his tweets and other people. So the Friday wrap is, is an aggregation of all of that. Um, for people who want to use this uh, uh, more professionally or want to subscribe for the premium product, we have Merger Arbitrage Mondays, which is a more popular post we publish every Monday that gives a roundup of all MA activity from the prior week. We have insider weekends. And then we build tools like the double dipper we were talking about or the spin cider where we're looking at spin-offs with insider buying mm-hmm. or the cluster purchase screen. So all of those screens and the merger arbitrage tool are included with our premium product. Um, so insidearbitrage.com would be uh, where they could find uh, more information about some of the stuff that we're doing. Uh, they can also find me on Twitter at Asif Surya. And you are criminally unfollowed on on Twitter. I you know I I personally need to just thank you because you've been such a a wonderful um, source of idea generation for me for years for for a long long time. So I it's you know we are way overdue in in doing this, and I'm just so grateful to you for for sharing your work in this way. I encourage everybody to to follow you on Twitter and uh, to to check out the website because, like I said, I found it invaluable. So, Asif, thank you 
you so much for taking the time to do this. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Jesse. I've really enjoyed your work over the years, and uh, I'm thankful to you for you know flagging the energy insiders to me in mid 2020. So you've been a great source of ideas for me as well. And the Ben Hunt interview about busting out Bed Bath and Beyond was just a delight. So thank you, Jesse. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss. <laughs>